Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, or not, just verse 26 here. If you notice in your bulletin, it just says selected scriptures, because we're going to be all over, all over the Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible under your, under your chair or the chair in front of you, there's a black Bible like this. Feel free to go ahead and grab that and uh, feel free to use it as we go along. Um, let's see. Who's using one of these right now? Raise your hand if you're using this t- this morning. Okay. I'm going to ask Bethany or Ben. Well, when I get to certain page numbers, I'm going to ask you to shout out the page number for me because we're going to be all over the place just to make sure those who are visiting with us can follow along. Okay. So Genesis chapter 1, I'm assuming is on page 1. Is that right? Okay, Genesis chapter 1 on page 1. Let me read to you verse 26. Then God said, there's a sixth day of creation, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule, of the, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Our Father in heaven, we so desperately need your word to shape our minds and reform and renew our affections and guide our actions. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to take every thought captive to Christ this morning. Lord Jesus, we call you Lord because you rule over all. And so we want to submit our thoughts and our feelings and our perspective and our actions to you above all and over all. And so, Lord Jesus, we've asked for your help. You you told us, Lord, that if we abide in you and your words abide in us, we can ask and bear fruit, for in this the Father is glorified. So, Father, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to guide us. We're asking for open eyes, soft hearts, malleable wills, and ready feet to walk in your ways. We pray for your help. We desperately need it. We pray even for our children who are going to be hearing about your glorious in Christ. We ask that you'd open up their hearts to the gospel. That you take out their heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and write your law on their hearts. They might love Christ and follow him all the days of their lives. This only comes from you, and so we ask you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Christians... We certainly want to follow Jesus and love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to love others well. And that means if we want to help others follow Jesus, that's what we're about. If we're about loving God and loving our neighbors, then we need to care about ethnicity or the topic of race and racism as it is popularly called. It's necessary for Christians to think about this topic um, and it's necessary for us to address, it's necessary for the church to address this topic every so often and to disciple people in thinking about this issue. Amen. It's very important, okay? And so um, some might say, well, is this 
just a calendar thing, PJ. I mean, it's Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. You do this every year for Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. So is it just a, is it just a calendar thing? It is not just a calendar thing. We, we will preach it at least once a year and hopefully more, even just throughout different applications of the texts that we preach on as we were going to jump into Matthew in February. But the point here is that it's, it's very important for the church to be aware and to be speaking and to be thinking and acting on these things. So some might say, well, PJ, isn't that a social gospel? Aren't you leaving the focus? What is the Great Commission? Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations. So that means you, t- you give them the gospel, you teach them about Christ, and you give them the Bible. Why go into these other social issues? Well, the first reason is, it's, well, I don't, I don't think we're leaving the gospel here. I don't think we're lo- losing our focus on Christ or leaving the Bible. I hope not. And if I am, you need to stop listening and just discern that. But we're doing really what, what's in our statement of faith. Some of you guys know our Baptist uh, faith and message. Our statement of faith of this church says, all Christians, this is what we believe as a church, are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. They're social there, society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. So we're not pretending that you could change the world and the community without them getting saved, without them repenting from their sins and getting a new heart. We're not pretending that you can permanently change things apart from conversion. Yet, it's still, it's, I'll continue, it says, in the spirit of Christ... Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual morality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Listen to this. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. That's a good statement. It's a true statement. It's a biblical statement. And so I want you to see here that this is something that Christians must think about. Oftentimes, or there's a large segment of Christians in America who will say, you shouldn't talk about these things because it's a social issue. It's not a biblical issue. It's not a gospel issue. And yet notice here in this paragraph, this is, I mean, this paragraph states my response, which is usually... Do you, teach, do, you preach about, do you preach about abortion? That's what we're going to talk about next week for the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. John Lee's going to come and preach against abortion next week from the scriptures. So isn't that a social issue? What about marriage? Is it good for our society to understand and live in the vision of one man and one woman in a covenant until death parts them? Is that a good thing for society? Yes. Is it important for us to speak up on that as a church and as Christians? Yes. That's a societal issue as well. Now, there's biblical roots to that, right? There's biblical roots to abortion. Same thing with race, racism, as we talk about. That's a bad term, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the point here is that if you're going to disciple people, we disciple people not to be better Bible students. Church is not a seminary, and you don't live in a big seminary. The world is not a seminary. You live with your neighbors. 
You live among the nations. You are sent here by God to love your neighbors and to give them the gospel, which means you need to have some understanding of their world so you can apply the biblical truth to your heart and to theirs. And so I agree with the statement of faith here, which is also the Southern Baptist Convention statement of faith, um, which is in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism. So it's very important that we, we disciple each other to think biblically about these things. And so to do this, you have here a blank page at the, back of your, uh, at the back of your song sheet here. So if you want to take notes, maybe you want to write some things down here. I could also email you the, the things here. It's also going to be recorded, so don't worry about trying to figure out everything here. I have a lot of information here. I want to make about, we'll see how much time we have. I want to make about 14 statements, 14 biblical theological statements to give a framework for understanding ethnicity, races, and people groups, okay? 14 biblical theological statements. And then from there, we'll, we'll, draw some applica- we'll draw some general theological points from that. So this is going to be the story of the Bible. We're going to do 14 statements along the story of the Bible from creation all the way, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, okay? From creation all the way to consummation. We're going to do 14 points along the way. And then we'll make some general statements about the issue and then some application, okay? That's where we're going. So... The 14 statements of the biblical theology or the story of the Bible. If I had to break down the story, and this is a way you can think about the story of the Bible, not just for this issue, but in a lot of issues. Normally people say creation. What's after creation? Fall. If there's four, what's the third one? Redemption and restoration. So they say creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's great. Let me give it to you a little bit. Let me give you in a, in a close but similar way, but let me expand a little bit. So I'm going to say creation, fall. Same thing there. And then we'll say the kingdom in history. God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule in history. The kingdom of God in history. The kingdom of God in prophecy. And then the kingdom of God in fulfillment. Okay? So creation, fall. Kingdom in history. Kingdom in prophecy. And kingdom in fulfillment. If you're thinking about the biblical, theological, or the story of the Bible, the timeline, let me give it to you like this. After God makes Adam and Eve creation, they fall and they sin. And then... When we get to kingdom in history, we start from Abraham all the way to Solomon. That's the kingdom in history. From Abraham all the way to King Solomon. And after King Solomon, Israel starts to decline, and all the prophets start coming out and preaching a greater fulfillment of restoration. That's the kingdom in prophecy. Okay, from Solomon all the way till the end of the Old Testament. That's kingdom in prophecy. And then at the end, you have kingdom in, what's the the last one? Kingdom in fulfillment, and that's in who? Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's the New Testament, okay? So that's the story of the Bible, and we're going to make some points along the way. So here's, here's a few on the creation point, okay? Creation, Genesis 1.26, statement number one, all humans are made in the image of God. That's right there, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, so God created man, that's speaking of humanity, in God's image. That means... I got to move on. I can't stay at any one point too long or we're going to get stuck. That means that we reflect God. When you see humans, any human, you're seeing an image and a picture of God. Okay? You see an image, you see a picture of God, and that gives them dignity. That gives them worth. That means the way you treat them is the way you are sort of treating God. So if you, like, that's why God says don't murder because that person's made in God's image. And James says, you talk bad about people, you judge people with your words, and they're made in God's image. So you think you're the judge over God? Okay, so all humans 
are made in God's image. doesn't matter what, ethnicity, gender, social class, all humans are made in God's image. That's number one. Number two, all humans are descended from, look at Genesis 5.1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. So Genesis 5.1 says, everyone's coming from Adam. So everyone here is from Adam. So we're all cousins. We all have the same great, great, great grandfather. We all have the same greatest grandfather, Adam. All humans everywhere, all seven billion, are from Adam. Not only are they from Adam, there's another great, great, great grandfather that we all have in common. Who's that? Noah. In Genesis 9-1, remember, God kills everyone, judges everyone on the earth, and everyone dies in judgment except who? Noah, his wife, and his three sons. So you're from one of Noah's three sons. And so we're all from Noah. Okay, so that's my second statement. All humans are descended from Adam and Noah. So we're all family. We're all related in that regard, okay? You guys with me so far? All humans are in God's image. All humans have descended from Adam and Noah. Third, all humans have a cultural obligation. All humans have a cultural obligation. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 26. All humans have a cultural obligation. Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Okay, so God created man in his own image. He created them male and female, or in the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule. Okay, so what do we learn here? All humans have the cultural mandate. What is the cultural mandate? If you are made in God's image, you know what that means? You have an obligation to create culture, to do culture, okay? And what, what, what are they doing here? So he says, what, what's the command in verse 28? Be what? Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Subdue it. In other words, if you are an image bearer, you are called to, I need to be careful here, I was going to say, you're, all, you're called to marriage, but not all of you are called to marriage necessarily. But generally speaking, if you're going to be fruitful, that means have babies. And physical intimacy is always, in the Bible, tied to marriage. It's never to be divorced from marriage. Whenever you try to, you know, there's Harvey Weinstein and all this Hollywood stuff that's going on and the hashtag me too, praise God that people are giving, given an opportunity to speak up to things. But whenever you try to clean up one part of, of this culture, you know, harassment, and you divorce it from marriage, and, and a definition of marriage between one man and one woman, you're, 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 you're trying to climb a ladder made of water. You're not going anywhere. You, you have no bearings and no opportunity to get out of the mess because of all the structure around that you've destroyed. Okay, so marriage and procreation, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, that's all in the context of marriage. So if you're going to be fruitful, at least in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That means get married, have babies, travel the world, and set up cultures. Build your societies and cities. That's the cultural obligation given to everyone. Okay? Now, again, you don't have to be married to to do... To, uh, well, you do have to, to do that to be fruitful, but you could still build culture and be blessing people and multiply. We'll see in other ways with the Great Commission. But here's the point. All humans have a cultural obligation. Okay, that's all what God's design was before Adam and Eve ate the fruit, before the fall. Those three things are true before the fall, and they're still true. 
Now let's go to the fall. So that's creation. Now in fall, here's a few more. In the fall, we have... um, This is going to be from Ephesians 2, but you don't have to turn there now. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are born sinners. So here's the, the, the fourth point under the fall. Humans are now born into sin after Adam. Now that Adam ate the fruit and sinned against God, we're all born sinners. We're all born sinners. You have babies. We have some babies in our church. They're really cute. They're really cuddly, but they're sinners. You know, you don't teach them to sin. You don't teach your kids to sin. You don't teach them to lie. You don't teach them to get angry and self-centered. They'll do it. It's in their nature. It's in our nature. All humans, because of Adam's sin, we are all born into sin. And sin deceives us. Sin hardens our heart. It distracts us from others' needs. And it makes us compare ourselves with other people in such a way that we distinguish ourselves from them and exalt ourselves. Have you ever noticed you do that when you compare yourself with other people? At least you you tend to do this. You compare your strengths with other people's weaknesses so you can feel better about yourself. So they have something, you have something. Well, at least he's not as good as me at this. right? And you, you try to take your strength and their weakness to help yourself feel better about yourself and to exalt yourself. That's part of sin, to, to, to do self-exaltation. Okay, let's move on. Um, next statement here. All people groups, this is statement number five, I guess. All people groups were originally broken up by language, not skin color. Not their, the, the shape of their eyes or their lips or their nose or their, the style of their, the, 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 the feel of their hair. That's not how human groups were broken up originally. People groups were broken up by language because of corporate rebellion. We're going to spend some time here. So go to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 in your Bible, the Tower of Babylon. If you want a full sermon on this, you could look at the sermon from two years ago. I'm just going to summarize some of that here. All right, so all people groups were originally broken up by language, not by skin color. So God says, be fruitful, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. That means you got to travel, right? And you know what they do in Genesis 11? They say, you know what? We're not going anywhere, God. We're going to stay all together, and we're going to build a big tower that's going to show our greatness, and we are going to build a name for ourselves. Genesis 11, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. So that's it. They want to build a name for themselves and not be scattered, even though God told them to go scatter. Now, if you scatter, they're made in whose image? God. So whose image and whose glory and whose name are they exalting all over the earth? God's, right? That's what they're doing, or they're supposed to be doing. But when you don't scatter and you choose to stay in the same place... You are working against the spread of the glory of God for your own selfish, self-exalting purposes. That's what they're doing here. So then in verse 5, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. They thought it was so big, little dot to God, if that, right? Verse 6, the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord did what? Scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So what do we have here? 
We have people, groups, broken up and scattered. Was it like, oh, okay, everyone who's lighter skin, go over here. Everyone who's darker skin, go over here. And everyone who has this kind of hair. Is that how God scattered them? No. No. What did he do? He changed their languages. That became the, the dividing line of the people groups. Was not their appearance. It was their language. It was their language. And so... We see here um, what I would call in the situation the, um, the birth of racism. The birth of racism. But before we get to the birth of racism, um, let's talk about what is race. Let's get some definitions here. Let's stop here because we're, we're figuring out these people groups. What, what does it mean to, to be a part of a, per, a certain race? According to the Webster Dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says, what is race? Any one of the groups that human beings can be divided into based on a shared distinctive of physical traits. A family, tribe, or people, or nation belonging to the same stock. So it's genetic. It's physical appearance. Physical traits. That's one way. And then another group, another definition says, a group of individuals who share common culture or history. And then here's a third definition which contradicts those other two. A major group of living things, like the human race. Once you start using race as ethnic people group, then you put one race above another race, and you say one race is actually genetically supreme to another race. The Bible doesn't speak of race that way. The Bible speaks of the race as the human race, the people of God, all people of God who are saved as God's chosen race. And, and that's the two ways that the Bible speaks about it. And so with, there is one race. There are not many races. So that's a bad word to use in this conversation and in your thinking. You know why? That, if you use that word, you're already predisposed to dividing people based on the wrong divisions. And if it's, 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 not, it's very similar. Like you try to solve the race issue with using the wrong terms and you're shooting yourself in the foot as you're trying to build. You can't do it because in the language, it's changing what you, it's shaping the direction of the conversation, the way you think about things. Okay. So that, that's what race, when we use race in our culture, we talk about, oh, are you Asian or Filipino or Mexican or African American? We talk about race in terms of cultural people groups. And that's not, um, then one race can be different than another race and one race can be superior to another quote unquote race. All right, so what should we do then? How should we talk about it? I want to suggest that we maybe use different language like ethnic people group. Ethnicity is a, is a good way, but that could also be confusing. But I just think if, I think the best way, and this, I, I could be wrong. I'm going to keep learning for the rest of my life how to figure this out. But right now, I think the best way of talking about it is just, to just take missions. Let's just, let's just learn from our missionaries. How do our missionaries in the International Mission Board and on joshuaproject.net, how do they talk about ethnic people groups? Because they're thinking about sharing the gospel everywhere, right? So they think about it as, here's what, here's what they mean by ethnic people. Groupings of individuals based primarily on ethnic or community boundaries. So a people group is a significantly large grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity with one another. That's pretty porous, right? A common affinity with one another. Laker fans. We've got a common affinity for the Lakers. That, I mean, in one sense, that is a, in, a, in a broad sense, that is a people group, you know? 
And so you could define people group in a lot of different ways. The point here is that there's no um, steel barrier of divisions. It depends on what you're talking about. And when you have that flexibility, you can actually start to talk about this conversation properly. Because if you're locked into the ironclad division lines, you just can't get over them because they're not biblical lines. They're not biblical ways of thinking. Okay, and so with that, I I just want to say here, just um, a short application is, um, let me give one application here, which is use your language, watch the way you use your language, so that your language, just understand that your language shapes your theology. Okay, and this is true for everyone. Out of the abundance of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. speaks. That's true. Your, Your words reflect your beliefs, but guess what they also do? They also shape your beliefs. It does both. Your words reveal your beliefs and shape your beliefs. Okay, so um, they strengthen your beliefs. So say ethnic people group instead of race. Say, and I'm going to define racism in a second, say ethnocentrism or groupism rather than racism. I'm going to say why in a second. Even, let me give you another application. Man, this is just going to, I feel like I'm going to be creating so many questions here and stepping on so many different questions. I'm going to lose a lot of people at different parts of the sermon. So just listen to the recording. We're going to have lots of conversations about this. Let's just continue to disciple each other. That's the beauty of living in a church family. I would even say, don't say, I'm getting myself in trouble with this conversation, right? Don't even say black and white. Well, and here's, well, you know, I I know that's seriously going to get me in trouble. But I would say, say, we say African-American, right? I was look, even looking at joshuaproject.net and the way they do people groups. You can be African-American, you can be Hispanic-American, and guess what? Uh, and then you can be Anglo-American. That's the way the missionaries look at white Americans. Anglo-American. Not, and then you get down, and then, so that's consistent there, and then later on it just says just American. But I would encourage you to not say white, but say Anglo-American. You're saying, that sounds really weird. You know what that's going to do, though? It's shaping the way you think about your people group. If you say white and black, what are you thinking about? What are those things? Color. And what are you making distinctions on? Color. You are reinforcing the divisions on the wrong lines. That's not where the lines lie. Okay? So if you, if you take language and you, you think about it, it sounds really weird. Nobody talks like this, okay? I understand that. This is the beauty of being a pastor in a local church. You're not to change the whole world. Just disciple your church, right? So I'm, in this church, okay, understand. So this is what the Bidianio Bile says, who thinks about this a lot. Step one in solving this issue is to check your language because it frames the way you have the conversation. If you, if you fail here, it's not like everything's lost, but a lot is lost. And a lot of it is running, you know, um, turning your wheels in the mud in that regard. All right? So what is racism then? What is racism then? Racism, racism is, uh, you guys ready with this for your notes? This is a long definition. Sorry. I try to make it shorter, but it's long. Just, just listen to it and then just don't, don't worry about writing it all down. I'll, I'll give you the notes later. I'll email it to the church. Here's what it is. I just, I'd rather have you think about it this way. Don't think of the word racism, because that has the word what in it? Race. What do we have here in Genesis 11? Different people what? Groups. So, um, so, well, I'm sorry. Before I define it, 
Let me go back to the people group here for a second. This is the birth of racism or groupism. Why? What were they all doing as a whole people group? What were they doing in, this, in Genesis 11? What were they trying to do? Build a what? Tower to build a what? Name for who? Themselves, their group. We have one group. We're not building a name for God. We're building a name for our group. So here's the birth of groupism or ethnocentrism, if you like, what people might call racism. Here's the birth of it. If everyone is seeking their own group to exalt their group, and then God breaks up groups among languages, then guess who, now what happens to the groups? What are the groups going to try to do? Exalt who? Themselves. But now they're not exalting all of the human race. They're exalting the Filipino-American group, or the Mexican-American group, or the African-American group, or the Anglo-American group. or the And you could, you could just go further down in the people groups, but the point is, we always cheer for ourselves, right? It's a survival instinct, and it's not wrong to, to want to survive and take care of yourself. But then, if you have an affinity group, then you start to cheer for that group, and then you put that group against what? Other groups, and you, you compete your group versus other groups, and that's groupism. Okay, or that's ethnocentrism, because you have now made, I make my people group, whether it's my church, or my tribe of, of theology and evangelicalism, or evangelicalism, or Filipino-Americans, or Asian-Americans, or Americans versus the rest of the world. Wherever I want to divide the line of the group, I'm always going to be for my group first, right? Why? Because I'm part of that group. Well, if you just break up groups, now all of a sudden you have groups that are exalting themselves against each other, and that's where the conflict begins, between groups. The groups are formed in Genesis 11, and in the formation, their hearts are not changed, so self-exaltation remains. And so instead of having one group of self-exaltation, you have 30 groups of self-exaltation, or 50 groups of self-exaltation. And now you have the division of humanity along people group lines. All right? So what is groupism then? What is what I would call racism, or what people in the culture would call racism? What is ethnocentrism? Here it is. Don't write it down. Just listen. A subtle mindset that justifies exalting your group by increasing opportunities for your group's advancement. And it cultivates, so you're, you're justifying exalting your group, and that's not necessarily wrong, but it also cultivates indifference, apathy, or unawareness, or even self, uh, sinful competition to, um, to other groups, causing them to diminish or lack opportunities. Okay? So it's exalting your group and increasing their opportunities to the detriment, to the shrinking and the deteriorating or the ignoring of other groups' opportunities. So, you, it, it, and oh, here, let me add to this. Okay, this is where it starts to hurt, okay? It doesn't have to be self-conscious. You don't have to think, I'm going to exalt my group, and that's when it's sinful. No, no, you don't have to even intentionally think about it. It is not it's not the same thing as individual irrational prejudice. Okay, yeah, I have a lot. I mean, I studied this for a little bit, so I have way more than I could say here. But um, individual irrational prejudice, Ra- racism is such a bad word. Like, everyone wants to not be racist, right, in our culture, right? So because we so badly don't want to be, um, be seen that way, we just start to change our definition of things to make sure we're not that. It's the same thing with like now we're in the middle of it and we're Christians here, most of us, so we understand what it's like in our culture now with the LGBT issue, right? If, you, if you're against, if, if you define marriage as one man and one woman for a lifetime, you are a bigot, a hater, and a homophobe, right? 
And nobody wants to be that. And we shouldn't want to be that. So you'll see, say, Christians say, you know, if they're getting interviewed, I, I think it's wrong, I think it's sinful, but I'm not a homophobe. Like, you almost have to say that right after it, right? You can't just say, I think it's wrong, and they assume you still love people. You have to say at the end of it, I'm not a homophobe, because the culture is putting so much cachet in that that you have to, you have to buttress yourself against it. It's the same thing with racism. Because racism is such a, um, you know, back, you know, 50 years ago or 70 years ago, it wasn't a bad thing to be racist in culture. You know, people would brag about being racist sometimes in some parts of the, the country. But now it's so bad everywhere, rightfully so, it shouldn't be a good thing to be celebrated, but people stay away from it, and so they start to define it as, if I look at a person of another color or physical traits, I don't, I'm not prejudiced towards them, so I'm not racist. That's not, what I'm, that's not how I'm defining it here. I'm talking about groupism, exalting your group, ignoring and diminishing or taking opportunities away from or not even helping, caring for other groups, for your own group. That's the sin. That's, that's how we would biblically define sin, okay? Now, that doesn't always match up exactly with the cultural conversation, but I'm here to teach you the Bible. All right. So groupism is sneaky. Groupism is sneaky. It's sinful. It's satanic. It's a sinful, sneaky, satanic attempt to isolate and block. What was the whole mission of God in Genesis 1? Be fruitful, multiply, and what? So, and, and do what? Fill the earth. Here's God's goal, to get his glory around the whole globe. One person's glory, or triune God, one God's glory around the whole, whole world. That's God's mission, right? And you know what um, groupism does? It's a sneaky, sinful, satanic attempt to isolate people groups and block the spread of God's image going around the whole world to glorify him. Groupism is a strategic hindrance to the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. So groupism is a Christian problem because our greatest mission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnic people groups, right? And so groupism is a strategic initiative of Satan to block our very mission. So we need to understand it. Okay? So that's the kingdom... Um, that's creation and fall. I had some other statements there, but I already kind of said them there, so let's move on. Kingdom and history. So what does God do? If, if, if the groups are all messed up now and you've got all kinds of people with different languages, how are there, how's there going to ever be peace? How's God's glory going to spread to the whole earth? Well, look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to where? To the land I will show you, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. Stop there so far. What were they trying to do in Babel? Make their what great? Their name, right? Build their own name. And guess who's getting a great name here? Abraham. They wanted to get a great name for themselves. God humbles them, because God humbles the proud, but he exalts the lowly. Now, that's debatable. Abraham wasn't lowly here, but let's move on. God was just gracious to Abraham. But Genesis 12, 3. Here's where we get to the issue of ethnicity, ethnic people groups. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here it is. And all the what? What's the next word there? Peoples. Peoples. That's weird. Does it say people or peoples? What's the difference between people and peoples? Peoples are people groups. All the ethnic people groups on earth will be what? Blessed through you. 
So the world is falling apart in sin because of Adam and Eve eating the fruit, and we're sinners. We're all going to hell for our sin. And then we're all broken up into different groups, and we're all self-centered and group-centered to the detriment of other groups, continually perpetuating our sin. What's the hope of the world? Well, God promises to Abraham that through Abraham there'll be a great nation, and through Abraham all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. He will reverse the curse for all humanity, not like everyone's, for all, every people group, for people from every ethnic people group in humanity. God will reverse the curse and bless them through Abraham. And so what do you see in history? So that's, that, that's one of the statements I have. I don't know what number you guys are on, so I'm just going to say, what number are you guys on? Six? Okay, that, that was, okay, six is, I don't know if this is six or seven. Tell me, I'm going to say it and tell me what it is. Abraham is called, uh, Abraham is called, and Israel is a royal priesthood for the nations. So Abraham and Israel, through Abraham and Israel, God makes a royal priesthood for the nations. So is that six or seven? Six, that's six, okay. That's number six. So God cares about the nations, and he's going to reach the nations through Abraham and Israel. You can look at this later. I'm not going to read the verse now. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says that Israel will become a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The nation will be a priesthood to mediate God's blessing to the nations. You can look at that later. I've talked about that a lot in this church, because you guys know I've been working on that for school. All right, that's number six. Number seven, Solomon... Praise that the temple would unite the nations. Solomon prays that the temple would unite the nations. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you guys are using a pew Bible, shout um, 296, okay? 1 Kings chapter 8, you have Solomon's prayer here. Um, you know, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. Let me just say what's here in 1 Kings 8. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays for foreigners and for Gentiles to pray to the temple. And when they pray to the temple, this is in verse 41, 1 Kings 8, 41, even the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, Yahweh, God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for they will hear of your great name um, when they pray. When, when they come and pray toward this temple, verse 43, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all the peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. There's Solomon's prayer that in the kingdom, in Jerusalem, where the palace is and where the temple is, that when foreigners from all the nations, every ethnic people group comes and prays at the temple in the name of Yahweh, that God would answer them. And that they would know God. Okay, so God cares about the nations. Through Israel to the nations. Moving on now. That's history. Well, the kingdom is... Um, the king, they're kicked out of Israel. Later on in history, after Solomon, they're kicked out of Israel. And God promised, promises to them during this exile that he's going to gather and save Israel and all the nations. Let me just read it to you. You guys write it down, but don't turn there. Isaiah 66, 18 and 21. Listen to this. This God, oh, so here's the next statement. This is statement number eight. Statement number eight is God promises to gather all nations. Okay, God promises to gather all ethnic people groups. You can just write EPGs. That's what I write in my notes all the time. God promises to gather all ethnic people groups. Isaiah 66, 18 and 21, knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. I will establish a sign among them and I will send survivors from them to the nations. 
move on. And they will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all your brothers from all the nations as a gift to the Lord on horses and chariots, in litters and on mules and camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. And I will take some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So what does God promise? When, when the, when, during prophecy, the kingdom and prophecy, that God will gather all the nations. That's the Old Testament. That's the end of the Old Testament, okay? So let me just recap what happened in the Old Testament. God created man and, their, man and woman in his image. They fell because of sin. They had groupism because of self-exalting sin in groups. God promises through Abraham and Israel to save the nations. They get exiled, and yet during the exile, God promises through Isaiah and the prophets that he's going to gather the nations. Okay? You guys with me so far? That's a story. Let's move on now. So let's go to Jesus, the kingdom in Jesus. We're going to move quicker here. Statement number nine. Statement number nine. God the Son becomes a human and dies for the sins of all nations. God the Son becomes a human and then dies for the sins of all nations. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says, they sang a new song before him and they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. This is the elders and the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures before the throne. Jesus, the lamb, just takes the scroll and they all bow down and it says, and they all sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. He dies. You were slaughtered and you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth forever. Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, nation, language, and people. That's Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Stay, um, so pause, let me pause there. Um, if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, first of all, let me thank you for coming this morning. We're glad you're here. This is not, um, this, is, this seems a lot more um, sweep of the whole Bible. This is not typical what we do in our church. We typically just take a passage of one, one passage of scripture and explain that passage. But thank you for being here. God meant for you to be here this morning, so thank you for coming here. I want to tell you just briefly from what I just said, this is the main message of Christianity. So if you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity and you only remember one thing about this whole sermon, listen up right here. Here's the good news that I just read to you from Revelation 5 when it says that Jesus was slaughtered. We are all sinners and we are all going to hell because of our sins. All of us, you, me, everyone here. Christian and non-Christian, we are all sinners and because of our sin, we are all doomed to go to hell because God made us to reflect him and we, we refused and rejected him. So everyone here is on their way to hell. But here's the good news. God sent Jesus Christ, his son. He became a man. He lived the life we should have lived. He taught and loved and served and made disciples. He dies on a cross, even though he never sinned in his life. He dies and he takes the judgment of God on the cross. He dies for our sins. He dies for your sins and my sins. He rises from the dead. He dies for your sins. If you will now repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're saying, what do I need to think about all this ethnocentrism and what is an ethnic people group? This is crazy. Okay, just, just remember this. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you will turn from your sins and turn from your goodness and your righteousness and trust in Jesus's goodness and righteousness alone, you'll be saved. Amen. You could be nine years old. You can be 90 years old. And God can save you right now. Amen. 
if you'll turn from your sins and trust in him. He's calling you right now through my voice. He's calling you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's an offer for you, the greatest offer in the world. That's statement number nine. Now, let me go to statement number 10. So God, that was, nine was God, the son becomes a human and dies for the sins of all nations. All people here, if they would repent and believe. Number 10, Jesus commissions his people to gospelize and disciple all nations. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations. nations. Whenever you see nation, I know this is being recorded, so I probably won't say it. I read a systematic theology book last night, one of them on, on uh, the doctrine of ethnicity. And it was really good. I was really grateful they did it. But they did one thing that really irked me. They were talking about nations as in the 196 nation states of, of our world today. So the United States is a nation. Mexico is a nation. Canada is a nation in terms of three nations in North America, right? Those are nations the way we use it. When the Bible talks about nations, it's not talking about those nations. It's talking about ethnic people groups, okay? So go therefore and make disciples of all ethnic people groups. Jesus commissions. So we need to go. Now we need to go. He sends us. So Christ dies for us. He sends us. And then what happens? Um, That's Jesus Christ for us. And now Jesus Christ in us. Here's statement number 11. Statement number 11. Jesus creates the church made up of all EPGs, all ethnic people groups. Jesus creates the church, his body, to be made up of all ethnic people groups. This is Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, Jesus made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations so that he might create in himself one new man for the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. Jesus Christ has made one body, the church, All ethnic people groups, he removed the hostility by his death on the cross. You get peace with God, he becomes your father, what do we become? If we all become, if he all, if he becomes all of our, if he's our father, then we are what now? Children. And what are we to each other? Brothers and sisters. That's right. We're one family. Not many families. We're one family. One body. All right, number 12. Um, Jesus creates this body as a new and holy nation or a new and holy ethnic people group. I don't mind whatever country you're from, you being patriotic. It's not necessarily a sinful thing. Actually, it could be a very good thing. But your patriotism for your nation state today must never come close to your patriotism for your, new, your holy nation. So let me read to you Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim his praises. So God creates in Christ a new nation, a new ethnic people group, and that is not our flag. The Christian flag there, just so you know. Um, Nothing against it, really, just is meaningless for Christians, okay? The point here is we are a holy nation in Christ because of the gospel. 
We are one holy nation. We are one ethnic people group. The local church is the church of Christ, so our local church will and must have a culture of relating to God, relating to each other, and the lost. So we are a new people. We're a new nation. Number 13, last one. I must have skipped one earlier. Number 13, last one. People redeemed from every ethnic people group will worship the Father and the Lamb forever in the new earth. We will, from every ethnic people group, worship the Father and the Lamb, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, forever in the new heavens and new earth. This is Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, it says, listen to this. Just let the words of God sink into your heart as I read it. After this I looked, John says, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That's it. That's the end of the story, that God will have a celebration in the new heavens and new earth with people from every tribe, people, nation, language. Okay, let me make a few statements from this in application, and then we're done. A few statements from here that we need to be thinking about today as Christians. We know that individual sin exists. Do you understand now that corporate sin exists too? That there's a such thing as a group sin? There's corporate sin, there's group sins, and there's individual sins. Group sin, corporate sin exists. And, I mean, I, you know, Daniel 9, Daniel prays and he says, Father, forgive, or he says to God, God, forgive us, the people of Israel, for our sin. As a people. Even Daniel, did, Daniel actually didn't even sin. He's confessing idolatry and he didn't even commit idolatry. But he understands that as a group, as a group we have committed evil. Okay, so there's such thing as corporate evil, corporate, corporate sin. Even in Revelation 2 and 3, when Christ is confronting the churches, he's calling churches out oftentimes, and not everyone in there is sinning. Sometimes he makes a distinction. Sometimes he doesn't. Okay, so corporate sin exists. Here's another thing you need to realize. Unintentional sins exist, right? Leviticus 4.2 says, um, when someone sins unintentionally against Yahweh's commands... Then he talks about how to handle it. So there's a such thing as unintentional individual sin. So get this. If there's such a thing as corporate group sin, and there's such a thing as unintentional sin, is there such a thing as group unintentional sin? You think that's possible? Yes. Okay? There's such a thing as group unintentional sin. So we could be sinning with groupism and not even know it. That's possible. That's biblically possible. So we need to be aware of that, okay, that corporate unintentional sin exists. And because it does, because we're born sinners, we need to be ready to fight against it. Let me make one more theological statement, and then we'll go to some application here. Okay, last theological statement I have here is um, the church is the place, and this is going to move right into application just by the statement. The church is the place where unity and diversity must exist. Okay, the church is the place where unity and diversity of ethnic people groups must exist. You know why? We are the only institution in the world that has the resources to break down the division. We're the only one. Because what's the problem at the end of the day? Sin, right? Pride, our hearts. What's the only solution to sin? God's grace in Christ, right? 
The world can't do it. Now, we could help them. We could, we could fight for just laws and marriage and in ethnic groupings and, um, and in abortion rights. We could fight for those, and we should. We should. But we understand that the church is the only group where we can really display ethnic harmony and unity among, in the midst of our diversity. Not only can we, we must. We must in the church. You know why else we're the only ones who could do it, practically speaking? At least in our church here, or at least what we're trying to do. You know why we have a church covenant? You know what the church covenant means? You guys see that right in the hymnal? You open it up and it's right there. You know what the church covenant means? It means that you can't run away. You're not allowed to run away. Because you know what? Living with a bunch of other sinners in this church, you know what's going to happen? It gets tough sometimes, right? I get on your nerves sometimes. Sometimes from here, sometimes in conversation, right? We all get on each other's nerves. We all sin against each other. And the covenant says we are not going to run. Amen. We're not going to just choose the easier path. We're going to stick together because we've committed to love each other in Christ. And we're going to actually deepen our relationships by working through our issues. That's what local churches are supposed to be doing. Now, we don't do it perfectly here, but that's what we're aiming at, right? That's what we need to be doing. Not running from each other, but working it out together. Not just in terms of personal conflict, but even ethnic people group conflict. We need to work it out. We need to not run when it gets hard because it will get hard. All right, application now. Let me give you guys some application here. Three words for application. Assimilate, test, and love. Assimilate, test, and love. What do I mean by that? And this is sort of in order. Assimilate another ethnic people group's perspective. Okay? Assimilate another person's perspective. I call this um, perspective assimilation. What do I mean by that? Learn to see the world through their eyes. One of the the geniuses, is that even a word? Geniuses of marriage? One of the really cool things, I guess. one 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 of the cool things about marriage is that the longer you're married especially in a healthier marriage, the more you could see the world from your spouse's perspective. And you could almost see the world from two sets of eyes all the time. Even if you don't agree with your spouse, right? So you, you watch something in the news and you're like, oh, I know exactly how Francis would respond to that. And this is how I would respond to that. And you almost have an extra set of eyes. You have another perspective assimilated into your mind. You don't have to agree with that perspective, but you have it. Well, you normally have it. If, if, when I'm being a good husband, I have it. When we're fighting, it's usually because I don't have it, right? The goal is to get it at that point when you're fighting. But that's the same thing here in terms of people group different. So you need to assimilate their perspective. You need to see the world the way they see it and feel the world the way they feel it, okay? Now, my second word is test, which means you have to test. I'm going to go back to the first word, but let me just say briefly here. You have to test their perspective because that doesn't mean you agree with them, Right? Just because I could see the world from your side doesn't mean you're right. doesn't mean I'm right. We still need to test it. That's the second, second part. But, but before you get there, we get so close to the second part already that we don't even do the first part good, right? We don't even do it well. We don't, like, oh, I already know you're wrong, so I don't even listen, need to listen to you. No, assimilate their perspective first, Christian or non-Christian. They're made in God's image if they're not Christian, right? If they're a Christian, they're made in God's image, and they're saved. All the more you should listen to them in your church. So, Listen to them, bless them, listen to them, eat with them, ask them questions, hang out with them, 
people different from you culturally and, under, and ask them, what, what do you think about this situation that's going on? Um, I'll give you a question to ask. I don't even have a good answer. I mean, you could ask me. I, I haven't thought about this, but it's been a crazy week for me. But what do you think about the recent statement by the president about, you know, the immigrants, um, you know, going back? Um, you know, what do you think? And you know what? Guess what, brothers and sisters? We're going to have differences of opinions in this church. And that's okay. We need to talk about it together and not attack each other. We're united in Christ, right? But that's, that's my point is ask and then assimilate their perspective. See it from their eyes. Feel it the way they feel it. Assimilate it, okay? Take their perspective and try it on. Take a spin in their perspective and just see the world through their eyes. That's number one. Number two, oh wait, um, sorry, well, say, um, let me encourage, give, me, give you reasons why you need to do that. You know what? Um, me and our kids were doing our family devotions last night and uh, David was being anointed as king. Remember, David had seven other brothers and Samuel said, oh, this is the king. Look at this tall guy. He looks really good. No, no, the next one. Oh, this has to be the king. Nope. Do you have any more sons? All seven are here. Oh, you got one more, the little one. He's out there taking care of the sheep. And then he comes, and, and then God says to Samuel, arise, anoint him. And he says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. I'm talking about the other brother. For God does not see what man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, um, we don't look at people with worldly perspective. That's this whole thing. Don't look at people from an earthly perspective. We no longer know Christ in that way, so don't look at other people in that way. It's hard to break out of your perspective. The only way you're going to do it, brothers and sisters, is by listening to your church family who's different than you. We frequently move from our perspective to universal directive. What I mean by that is, here's PJ's perspective on the world, and I move easily from my perspective to universal directive. This is the way everyone should look at it. Those are not the same things, right? The way I see something and the way everyone should see it is not the same thing. Yet, now as you're getting closer to the truth, hopefully you get there, but personal perspective is not always the same as universal directive. But when we make our perspective the universal directive, that's why we fight with each other. Because you should be seeing it the way I'm seeing it. Because you're part of this universe, so come under my directive of my perspective. All right, so listen to each other. I have a lot more to say about that. Let's go to the second one. So test their perspectives. So know what the Bible says. Test it by scripture, right? Test it by scripture. Check your own thoughts. Don't only test them. You know what? When you hang out with someone from a different cultural perspective, you know what that does? It becomes a mirror on your own perspective, right? And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to not only test theirs, but to test yours as you interact with them. Test both and then come closer to thinking like Christ. Because I'll, because I'll tell you what, right now, there is no culture, not any of our ethnic people group cultures, that has the Bible completely right. All of our cultures have strengths and weaknesses, and they're different. And not all of them are equal, but they're, all di- they're different. But everyone has to die to their preferences to really take what the Bible says. And you only do that by interacting with people different than you and saying, I don't understand why you say it that way. Good. Let's think about it. Let's, 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 let's work at it. Let's test biblically. So that's test. And lastly, love. Love others. And I don't, I don't have a lot here to this. I just have a simple statement. I was hanging out with, you guys, you guys know, um, you guys remember Pastor Bobby Scott? He actually preached on love here, right? Yeah. Remember that, 1 Corinthians 13? Pastor Bobby was here preaching on 1 Corinthians 13 last year. We were talking about this in his office. And he said, PJ, what, what, what are you trying to do? Like, what's the goal? 
Like, what are you trying to do with people you disciple in this issue? Like, what are you, where are you trying to get them to go? Like, how are you going to actually make this place better? And I said, brother, I don't, I don't think that far. Like, I honestly don't have a strategy. Here's what I, but here's what I believe, and here's what I think is biblically true, is God's people, I'm, I'm doing my devotions in 1 John. 1 John 3 and 4 talks about this love from heaven that God has. God is love, right? And God puts this heavenly Trinitarian love in our hearts that we love our brothers. And, and then God, John even says, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you say you love God whom you haven't seen. And his whole point here is that the Trinitarian love of God is placed in the heart of every true believer. Amen. So here's what, I t- here's what I said to Bobby, and here's what I'm saying to you in terms of this word love. I'm not trying to, and our church should not prescribe how to solve every problem. You know what I'm, tr- what I'm trying to say is? I'm trying to say is, if God's love dwells in you, I'm just telling you to unleash it. Just love your neighbor as you love yourself. yourself. Be creative. But you can't love until you do the first two steps. Assimilate their perspective. Test what's true and what's false. Discern that. Then, however best you discern that, that right and wrong, love them with the love of God that's in your heart. And if the church does that, I'm not saying we're going to turn our, our, our nation around, but we'll honor God and we'll make disciples and we'll celebrate the new heavens and new earth, won't we? And Satan and his whole groupism strategy to destroy us, Will not, will not hinder our church. Okay, groupism is is working against the Great Commission, which is why this is crucial for us. The best way to break down groupism in our own hearts is to love other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and get to know them. It's a missions thing. It's a disciple making issue. It's a love issue. Let's pray. I'll give you thirty seconds to pray on your own, and then I'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your name would be honored as holy, that your kingdom would come, your sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule in Christ would come in every ethnic people group, and that your will would be done here in Los Angeles and on this earth and in this nation state as it is done in heaven with joy and gladness and worship and enthusiasm. Father, we confess our selfishness and our self-centeredness, not just individually, but in groups, however we define them. We pray that you would help us again to take every thought captive to your son, to be rigorously biblical, to have lots of conversations, to not be scared to make mistakes as we love and try to get to know and understand other people, but to ask for forgiveness, to humble ourselves, to apologize when appropriate, and to keep growing. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our church family, for the different cultures even represented here in this room. We can't do this, Lord, only you can. And we pray, Lord, that we would not build a name for ourselves. May the name of Bethany Baptist Church and every one of our names in this church be forgotten. And may Jesus Christ be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.